Hey, GeoTrekkers, welcome to episode 89 of the GeoTrek podcast, Resilient Perspectives from the Gulf of Mexico Conference in Tampa, Florida. The conference, hosted by the Gulf of Mexico Alliance, brought together coastal scientists and stakeholders in state and federal government, academia, nonprofit, and private sectors to discuss current Gulf research and collaborate on new opportunities. This was a big conference held at the Tampa Convention Center, and I heard that more than 1,100 professionals participated. The conference offered both plenary and breakout presentations. I spent most of my time in the breakout room focused on coastal resiliency, and this podcast brings you interviews I conducted with four resiliency professionals from those sessions. Before we jump into those interviews, I wanted to welcome any new listeners and explain that the GeoTrek podcast explores the world to share stories about extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. Our stories focus on the physical processes behind these ex- extreme events, their impacts on society, and what we can do to get out ahead of them to reduce loss of life and property. The cost of this podcast is free, but we do ask that you would share it with at least one person who is interested about insights on how we can better prepare for extreme weather and natural disasters. Well, without any further introduction, let's jump into this episode of the podcast, where we'll travel together to the Gulf of Mexico Conference in Tampa, Florida. Our first guest is Dr. Savannah Barry, a regional specialized extension agent with the University of Florida, Sea Grant, and the Nature Coast Biological Station. She leads the Coastal Ecosystems Extension Program and is based in Cedar Key, Florida. Savannah, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much. Savannah, I really enjoyed and appreciated your presentation this morning about all the great work y'all are doing in Cedar Key. It seemed like a lot of these projects, you do a lot of engagement and outreach with the local population. Yeah, I mean, as an extension agent, it's really at the core of everything we do. And if we want our data to be acted upon and accepted in the community, bringing people in and helping them be part of making decisions and interpreting the data is so important. Something that stood out to me, you know, there's this push for everything to be high tech. And you talked a lot about not only using maps, but having paper maps, giving people markers. I think especially, let's say, with like older population there. Oh, yeah. Paper map, map marker. No problem. Whereas, you know, a high tech gizmo maybe put a barrier there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And we are here in Florida, land of the retirees. And so we do generally have a, an older average age for our outreach populations. But I think when people can write down their feedback on a map or actually draw a line or a circle around their property and get a real-time answer with a researcher, it helps them feel like their feedback really has been captured in a way and that they can you know, remember it better to be able to interact in that in that. Um, I guess, basic way with a piece of paper and understand that sense of place really better. Well, that's a good point. They're not only looking at the map, right, but you're giving them permission to like draw and write on it and mark up the maps, right? Yeah, because not only are we showing them maps of flood risk, we're also showing them options for mitigating that flood risk. So that can be things like green stormwater designs, like bioswales or things like that. And those actually have spatial boundaries, like we would install this rain garden here. And they might say, oh, no, but that's where my, you know, kids like to play croquet. So maybe could we move it over here? And so it's really about co-designing adaptation helping them understand the data, but then also like, where can we put some of these solutions on the ground? So how does that look? Would it be like in the start of an engineering project, do you bring in locals that they feel like they have input right from the beginning? 
Yeah, what we've done in Cedar Key is we've really approached all of these saying we have a problem and we know that we're going to build something to address this problem, but there's a range of ways that this can look. And so what we've always done is started with what we call like a visioning series of workshops and we come up with a conceptual plan that the community can at least accept the conceptual plan and then we step through with the engineers like 30% 60% design bringing that always back to the community and saying oh well we had to tweak something over here but this is the reason why and is this going to still be okay and always doing that iterative approach so it really seems like you're bringing them along on a process it's not just like we had that one hour meeting two years ago and if you missed it you missed it it's kind of like this ongoing process of dialogue with them, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a long-term process. I mean, we've had living shorelines that have taken, you know, three to five years to implement. We have other things that are in process that have been ongoing for two years already, just in the discussion phase. But ultimately, that actually helps more get built faster in our experience. And so it does sound like a lot of work to put in on the front end, but it actually leads to more things being adopted and then it snowballs over time. You also talked about in adaptation plans, knowing the history of a place. You mentioned much of Cedar Key used to be an archipelago where you had a lot of different islands that were then filled in. I mean, why is that important for that region? Yeah, well, a lot of Cedar Key was developed way back in the days where we didn't have wetland protection laws and everything was about convenience and industry. And so Cedar Key used to be an archipelago of islands. And for convenience and development purposes, there was a lot of filling in of wetlands to create causeways so that you could just drive more easily in between these islands. But what that's done is, A, they were built to a much lower performance elevation because sea levels were lower then and we didn't understand coastal hazards as much as we do now. So they are very low-lying coastal roads, and they're also built on top of fill on top of wetlands, so they're even subsiding on top of that. And it creates unnatural hydrological, you know, stacking up of water on one side or the other of the causeway. And over time, now that's led to risk of entire neighborhoods being cut off at high tide, not too far in the future, because these causeways were on filled wetlands. And so restoring that so that maybe it can be a bridge with some green infrastructure around it to allow that water flow and then also allow the human element to continue not cutting people off from emergency services and things like that. The filled-in wetlands that are lower, were any houses put there, or was this just more of like a, a passageway for the causeway or for roads? Luckily, not many of these parcels have development on them. Mostly it's just that gray infrastructure for transportation that's mostly at risk based on our analysis. Well, in your presentation, you actually brought up one of the big concerns was people getting cut off and transportation routes getting flooded. I'm I'm wondering if some of these low-lying areas are kind of like pinch points or, or, or areas that are most vulnerable that get flooded first. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the areas of roads where we've identified will be those cutoff points. So basically, you know, this one road gets flooded and it means two or three entire neighborhoods can't reach the mainland or emergency services. And it's almost to a T exactly where they filled the wetlands. So these are historically created vulnerabilities made by humans. And now we're having to do the work to sort of address and, and walk back some of those poor decisions of the past. That's fascinating that you know the history and you, and you can kind of see how that's played out and how those decisions back in the day mean a, a, a spatial uh, you know, pattern of, of flood risk to the, uh, today. Yeah, history is really important to people that live in Cedar Key. It's a very historical city. It's known as Old Florida. And so um, I'm not the only one that knows the history. And that was actually brought to us by engaging with the stakeholders. None of us at university people would have known that history. And the stakeholders brought it to us. So that's just another great thing that we learned from engaging with the community in the way that we do. 
Savannah, lastly, I wanted to talk about Hurricane Adelia, a major hurricane landfall up there by the by the Big Bend and Appalachian Bay of Florida. We know Cedar Key took a lot of coastal flooding. What was that like for residents, and what was it like for you as well with your work there and then watching the storm play out this past year? Yeah, I mean, I would say it, it, it can be really overwhelming, especially because this is the second time in just one decade that we have had, quote, historic storm surge. I mean, these are the highest storm surges on record. The previous highest was 2016 Hurricane Hermine. And so your talk this morning was actually really interesting, too, thinking about what are the actual, you know, long-term historical storm surges in these areas. And so I don't think anyone was necessarily surprised, but to be hit with another historic storm just seven years after the the one that broke all records previously was a lot, but uh, we had about 30% of structures were flooded in Cedar Key. And so it was definitely a really big impact, but a lot of people have made modifications based on what they experienced in Hurricane Hermine in 2016. So, you know, they took it a little bit more seriously this time and made some preparations that helped to make things a little bit easier. But certainly a lot of people are still experiencing impacts and uh, we've got a lot of outside help for cleanup and, and a, you know, Cedar Key is still open for visitors and things like that. But, but yeah, I don't think that that, that really is truly a 100-year storm anymore. Do you feel with the two big coastal floods in, within a decade, do you feel like people are taking coastal flooding more seriously now moving forward? I definitely think so. I mean, through our vulnerability assessment and the adaptation plan discussions we've had, we're really not getting pushback about whether any of these things need to be done. It's really just more a decision of when, where, on what properties. And there are even folks talking about things like buyouts or relocation of certain infrastructure. Conversations that you just wouldn't be able to have five years ago are now commonplace in Cedar Key. And and that may surprise some people, but I think they're really going to be getting out ahead of it. And more places should be having these types of conversations. It sounds like more and more people have accepted they're in a high-risk area, and we're really talking about options and and what is the optimal way to move forward, right? Yeah, definitely. And the city leadership has really been really great at bringing in outside resources and outside expertise, but also keeping the plan and the engagement authentic to Cedar Key and helping get out ahead so that they can maintain their local character for as long as possible. Savannah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, and best, best wishes to you at the conference. Thanks so much. You as well. Thanks for sharing your perspective, Savannah. There's so much I love about this interview we had. First and foremost, I love that Savannah and her team engaged so closely with the community throughout their coastal resiliency projects. She said they're co-designing adaptation with the community and talked about an iterative approach where they walk with the community through a range of solutions over time. It sounds like the community is involved throughout the entire life of the project. I love her anecdote that the community emphasized the value they place on local history. Cedar Key was settled in the early 1840s and was the second largest city in Florida in the 1880s, according to the Florida's Historic Places website through the Florida Center for Instructional Technology. Such local perspectives can help guide what we should prioritize protecting from increasingly extreme coastal hazards. Someone just passing through Cedar Key may not realize the historic significance of a weathered building, for example, whereas locals may highly value that building for its historical significance. I also found her story about workshops utilizing paper maps and markers to be insightful. In the age of rapid technological innovations, we can feel that everything we do needs to be high tech. 
Savannah shared that many people who attend these workshops are older and may actually prefer to mark up a map with a marker or a pencil or you know other writing device instead of having to use new technology all the time. The important thing is that we're engaging with the community and meeting them where they're at, capturing their knowledge and perspectives to be included on upcoming projects. Our next guest is Heath Hansel, a coastal and waterfront engineer at ATM, a geosyntech company. Heath is dedicated to finding practical, science-based, and sustainable solutions to clients' complex issues associated with the marine environment and is based in Charleston, South Carolina. Heath, thanks for taking time to come on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. Heath, your presentation was really popular. A lot of people were very engaged. You mentioned a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. Number one, you mentioned for people not to forget about the waves. We talk about sea level rise. We talk about storm surge. A lot of times folks aren't talking about the waves. Why is it important to consider wave action? So wave action is what goes on top of the storm surge. And a lot of people, when they're looking at these sea level rise visualizations and planning, they just do the easiest thing, which is look at sea level rise on top of what's there now. And waves are much more complicated. They're much more difficult to analyze and especially reanalyze compared to what's out there now. And it adds to your coastal risk, right? You have your sea level rise, your storm surge, but the waves can add more than sea level rise. Well, I'd imagine not only do they add more height to the water, but there's a lot of force behind those waves, right? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Hydrodynamic forces are leaps and bounds more than hydrostatic forces, right? Uh, Vertical flooding versus hydrodynamic waves. Um, And they also push further inland um, than they would normally with sea level rise. Heath, if people want to know about their risk for wave action, I mean, how can they find that out? Um, well, you know, in, in the, the U.S., we have the, the starting point of FEMA flood maps, right? You know, it's, it's good information. Um, a lot of people use it. They're, they're for our codes. Um, they're not readily evident of what the waves are in there. Um, they have their own sort of process. Um, you sort of have to dig deep into their reporting and their engineering analysis. Uh, but there's other sources. Um, there's lots of uh, online resources, you know, NOAA, wave um, uh, models. Um, but then, you know, depending upon what you want to know and what you care about um, and, and how much you're willing to pay, right, there's consultants out there that do numerical wave modeling and look in more detail at this kind of stuff. Heath, you also talked about horizontal levees. What, what's a horizontal levee? Uh, so horizontal levees are amazing. They're, uh, they're a nature-based natural solution. Um, and, and it's basically uh, adapting um, a design to work with the changing coastal risk. Um, a horizontal levee is a very large footprint structure. Um, it's intended to control flooding and adapt to sea level rise. Um, it can be a, a large waterfront park. Um, it can be a large you know, uh, living shoreline area. Um, and as the sea level rises, it slowly creeps up that sort of shallow slope of the horizontal levee where you lose usable space on the upland, but you plan for it and the shoreline just sort of slowly creeps up and you've adapted for it in your design so you know it's going to happen. I really like the graphic you had in your presentation. It just looked like this really long slope that's all usable with trees and parks and roads. But like you said, with rising sea levels, part of that slope would get eaten up over the upcoming decades, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's a reality that we have to face along the waterfront. Um, we have to know that that's going to happen. Um, you either have to build up or you have to go back. Um, and if you can adapt your designs and, and know that they're going to change, um, you, you, you know how to account for it and you can plan for it. Do you know offhand, I'm going to put you on the spot here, do you know offhand of communities or coastal projects that are using horizontal levees? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I do not know off any offhand. Um, one of the great resources is the Army Corps of Engineers Engineering with Nature Design Guideline. 
Um, they go through a lot of things. A lot of them are well-known. A lot of them are not. Um, and horizontal levy is, is one of the elements in there. Um, and that would probably be the first place I would look. Honestly. Does that tie into, I've heard the concept of like multiple lines of defense. Will horizontal levy often like be one of those pieces of defending against flooding that that's part of the bigger system? Usually it is. Yeah. So, um, you know, you've got sort of offshore breakwaters that can help break the waves. You have, you know, barrier island chains that can help limit storm surge. Um, these horizontal levees are, are one piece of a puddle of, of a puzzle. Uh, you know, there's obviously going to be stormwater infrastructure that needs to be upgraded. But yeah, and that, that's one piece and it can adapt. It, it shrinks, but it can also be built uh, up higher in, if needed. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, another thing you brought up that I had not heard of before is standards of care. I was like, what is this? When you, you explained it, you gave a really good example in your talk. Like, so what's an example of a standard of care? So a standard of care is, is sort of a legal engineering term um, where you as a licensed professional should be using the minimum standard of care when you're designing a project or advising a client on a specific project. And you know, typically those are dictated by codes, building codes, you know, uh, local ordinances. Um, but a lot of those codes and ordinances uh, don't account for climate impacts, don't account for sea level rise. And, you know, the expertise is, uh, the, the, the experts who are licensed in these, these fields have a duty to uphold a standard of care and advise their clients and try to design these projects to account for that. And there's sort of a disconnect between, you know, what is required by code and standard versus what is your responsibility as an expert um, to advise the client and recommend for design. And, you know, um, it costs money to, to design better and design, uh, adapt your design, and it's, it's not always possible. Um, and so engineers and experts are sort of stuck in the middle of what to do. So, for example, if a client said, I just want this to be as cheap as possible, don't worry about sea level rise, don't worry about future impacts. So perhaps you're saying like a professional would say the best practice here actually is to in include some of these other analysis or, or think about these other things, even if the client maybe said they don't care about it. Absolutely. The, the, the standard of care is to advise them and recommend to them what the best approach is, even though it's not code compliant. And, you know, you can find little ways, inexpensive ways to try to be as resilient and, and adaptable as possible. Um, it doesn't always have to be expensive. It doesn't always have to be crazy. But anything you can do um, to try to recommend the best practice. And, th and that's the standard of care that we want. Whether or not, you know, the owner ultimately chooses it, you know, that's, that's up to them a lot of times. So, Heath, it sounds like using your professional expertise to say, okay, I, I really, in a sense, have a duty to advise them, at least to inform them and educate them at, at least and start a conversation about things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's our duty. Just like if we see something unsafe in the field, if we're doing an inspection of uh, any structure, right, it's our duty to advise them, hey, there's a problem here. You need to know about it. It's the same way when we're looking at new things or planning new things. It's, hey, you're going to have a problem here and you need to know about it. Thanks so much for taking time to come on the podcast. I'm hoping you have a great conference. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Heath, for taking time to come on the podcast. I thought Heath's perspectives on wave action were really important. We often see long-term sea level rise analysis or a forecast for storm surge levels in a current storm and forget that large destructive waves can ride on top of those elevated water levels. Not only do waves add to the total water levels in coastal floods, but they also add a lot of destructive energy that can inflict substantial damage on the natural and built environments. I had never heard of horizontal levees before, but the concept makes a lot of sense. He showed a diagram of a horizontal levee in his talk. To me, they really look like a wedge with a long slope that slowly drops from the peak levee elevation on one end to a lower elevation on the other end. 
Designers can place parks, roads, walking paths, or other amenities along this gentle slope. As sea levels rise, the water will rise on the horizontal levee, shortening the long slope of the wedge. I like this concept because it creates a multifaceted, functional environment that can be used for transportation or recreation today on a feature that protects us from coastal flooding in the future. Our final interview is a conversation with two staff from Mississippi State University. Kiyama Williams is a community resilience specialist based at the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center in Biloxi, Mississippi. Her work focuses on flood risk and the effects of climate change on coastal community resilience. Nina Woodard is a habitat resilience specialist with Place SLR and an extension associate with Mississippi State University. Her work focuses on the effects of sea level rise on coastal habitats. So, Kiyama and Nina, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. I'm really glad to be here. I really enjoyed your presentation talking about what you're doing in East Biloxi and what you did in South Alabama, building resiliency. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that project. We'll start with you, Kiyama. Yeah, so the Resilient East Biloxi program is a community leadership development series and also community engagement. So what we did was we approached some community partners in East Biloxi, asked them, you know, how can we talk to the residents and, you know, decision makers about resilience, especially for flood risk, because it is a very flood prone area. It's a very underserved area that doesn't get a lot of attention in that way. And so they decided it would be best, you know, if we could have a series where the community leaders and the trusted community members are the ones who are, you know, talking about this information to their residents, to the people who know them well. So um, we've been doing it for two years now. Uh, I think about four semesters of leadership trainings. We've done trainings on grant writing, about how to communicate with you know, they're city officials. We've had a couple of them come to our trainings, which has been really great. Um, and we've done some great community engagement events, uh, making them fun. You know, we had a, a community festival, our first one for this past summer. Um, and that was a great opportunity for the community to connect with their local resources, learn about the program and learn about some resiliency actions. So Kiyama, were you in a sense training like their local leaders, like how to get their own grants and, and just coming alongside them basically through the project? Yeah, so it was a really collaborative effort. You know, we have community leaders who work on things like um, the homeless population, um, on, you know, immigration services, on affordable housing, on food access. So they all have very specific niches. So we brought them all together in a collaborative way to talk about how, you know, flood risk and like climate effects affects all of those things that make a healthy community. So really, we, we brought them into these trainings so they could learn, build up their organizational capacity to address these actions, but also make those connections so they could work together. And what they ended up creating was an action plan for East Biloxi. So for each of those, you know, what we call the social determinants of health, things like housing, food, education, for each of those, they listed what work is already happening in East Biloxi, where the gaps, where we can, you know, find funding to do some efforts, and what are the collaborative ways they can work together to then, you know, enact those projects when we do get funding. Kiyama, I love how closely you worked with the community there. I want to hear more about it. We're going to come back to Biloxi in a couple minutes, but let's go over now to South Alabama, where Nina, you were doing a similar project in South Alabama, right? 
Yeah, so we focused in South Monroe County um, just because we didn't want to focus on any one city because it's a very unincorporated area in South Alabama, so we just focused on the southern parts of Mobile County. And so we kind of first looked at Bayou Labattery. It was one of the incorporated cities in the area. And then we kind of just, like, you know, took the radius out when we found Coden and Irvington. And so we found our local organizations in Bayou Labattery. Um, I found Boat People SOS. They were very – they were very – very great organization in that area. They work with the community a lot, with the Vietnamese population and the fishing community. So it's great to find them. And they helped me find Gulf States Health Policy Center. They connected me to Daddy Danny Patterson um, in Battery as well. And he has a whole huge <laughs> effort um, in that area, working with the community, residents, churches, people. He's just, he's really people driven. And so he helped me um, connect with the community and the population there. Um, and I actually ended up on a whole different project working in an advisory community just to kind of help with the mental health in the area for the youth um, specifically after COVID happened um, but sidetrack the full focus of that project was to um, reach out to the community for flood risk resilience and try to make them more community resilient when it comes to flooding in the area and so we had um, two sessions the first session was focusing on just identifying the problems where's flooding happening what are the issues what are the hazards what are the impacts and then we had a second session to discuss um, some potential solutions. We went over some case studies in the area just so that the community could feel like it, there is possible action. There's action, small-scale action for flooding issues in the area. And then we're going to um, end with a community action meeting in March where we'll do a rain barrel giveaway so that people have collapsible rain barrels so they can actually take them home, put them over the shoulder, and then pump them up and put them in their yard um, and try to help with some of the flooding in their houses, but then also see an actual rain barrel at the Cambodian Temple um, um, an area that has some cultural significance for the area, um, for the Cambodian people, and set up that rain barrel and show them how a rain barrel works in action. You know, you mentioned in your presentation about these rain barrels. I hadn't quite heard of this before. Could you explain to our audience what is a rain barrel and why do people need them or why does it help people? Yeah, so a rain barrel can really be made out of anything. Um, a lot of the times you can get them at the Coca-Cola distribution plants, um, but you can make them out of a trash can at home yourself and you just kind of add, add the little spigots, um, put a hole on the top to make sure that the, you know, the rain goes into the rain barrel, um, put a screen to make sure that you don't have any leaves or debris in it. Um, but so it's just any giant huge container that's like a barrel that the rain can come off of the gutter from your roof and go into the rain barrel to collect that water and that water can be used to water your gardens wash your dog (laughs) basically during the downpour you're keeping that rain from going into the system the drainage system you're basically holding it during that storm and using it later right yeah, you're just storing it and using it later, and that just that way that the water's not pulling up in your yard. It's pulling up in that rain barrel to be used. And it's also even perfect for moments of drought because in coastal Mississippi, coastal Alabama, you also have periods where it just doesn't rain, so that water being stored is, can be used for later. Kiyama, I want to go back to you and Biloxi. So what was something about this project that surprised you? Were there any outcomes or you know just lessons that you learned that you're like, whoa, that was a, a, a light bulb moment? Were, were there anything like that in your project that stands out to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, It's been the enthusiasm and the reaction from the community. So, you know, people and this was nice connecting with these local organizations because people have been doing this work at a very local level. You know, um, 
I like to see action on that local level because sometimes it can take a long time to wait for things to happen on a federal level or even a state because you're competing for resources. So seeing residents notice a problem and then decide to take action on it and being able to say, hey, well, I can give you money to help you do this thing. I can give you people power to help you do this thing. And then getting that positive reaction and willingness to learn. And a lot of our you know, partner organizations have now incorporated you know, flood risk into how they're thinking about, you know, how the homeless, like how to support the homeless population in Biloxi or like where to do, you know, a local food co-op, like what kind of building will they buy? Will they try to find one in an area that's not in a flood risk zone? So it's the way that they've been integrating it into action has been the best part for me. I'm really glad you talked about local partnerships with government, because when a lot of people think about government involvement, they're just thinking at the federal level, right? And it's, it's at such a high level, a lot of us can't even see it, or it, does, it seems abstract. It sounds like you're talking about bringing organizations together at, at a local level and able to really see a lot of change maybe in a shorter amount of time. Yeah, and that's I mentioned, you know, we've brought a couple of our local Biloxi officials into some of these trainings. So we brought, you know, one of our like councilmen for the ward of East Biloxi, um, one of the community development um manager came and then we also had the coast transit authority their director you know who does the public transportation he came to one of our trainings about transportation so that was a great way to connect those community organization leaders with someone who has decision making power and out of that conversation they were able to say okay well you know this is a way that we can work together to make transportation more accessible and resilient for the future for this community you know, is there anything that stands out to you that surprised you about your project or moments where you like had a revelation or you're like, wow, this isn't really what I expected, but maybe like a learning moment? I think really just one of the biggest lessons learned was finding out that this was a community, you know, it had a Cambodian community, a Vietnamese community, and it's a lot of people that don't speak English. And so I think the biggest lesson learned there was realizing that we need to do better at finding translation services, translating our documents, and just making sure that non-native English speakers have access to the same resources and tools that people that do speak or natively speak English have access to, um, because they were very enthusiastic about learning about flood resilience and figuring out solutions and they're very enthusiastic about seeing documents in Vietnamese and Cambodian Um, and so I that was the biggest lesson learned just being able to provide them with accessible documents for the first time. I'm really glad you mentioned that you get into South Louisiana parts of southern Mississippi coastal Alabama you get a lot of folks from Southeast Asia right Cambodia Vietnam and then all throughout the Gulf Coast we have a lot of Spanish speakers as well right so having those uh, resources in their language I I think uh, maybe really helps Uh, reach them, I guess, or at least involve them in the conversation. Yeah, it was definitely good to reach them. And I think that we will continue to work with them and work on just translating past documents that we have that would be very helpful and just translating them into Spanish, English, Cambodian, Vietnamese, and just making sure that we do a better job and have a better role in making sure that they have access to documents and tools that are translated in all, all languages. Last question, Kiyama, um, really for both of you, I'm going to ask this question. What are, what's any advice that you would give for people that want to do projects like this in other coastal communities that want to improve their resiliency? Yeah, my biggest advice would be budgeting in time to make these connections ahead of the time. So the time to reach out to, you know, your local community is not three months before you're turning in a grant proposal, right? It takes time and building trust with these communities, especially depending on what kind of organization you work for, because especially in these underserved areas, these more rural areas, 
depending on the history, they might have been burned by, you know, public or like, you know, federal organizations. So it takes time to start having those conversations and not having it be an extractive process. Like start with what can I help you to do? Start going to their local events before you start showing up saying, okay, I want to do this thing. And then when you do it, make sure you're actually listening. So when they're saying like, I think we should focus on it in this way, you're not disregarding that because you are the subject matter expert, right? These people have local, long history, traditional knowledge about their area. They are the experts of their area. So how can you support them? I heard a few people talking about outsiders coming into a disaster prone community, knocking on doors, doing a survey. And these people, it might be the sixth time they've done a survey, right? And they feel like, what about the, all the other surveys I've done? It, it, everything can seem disconnected. It sounds like you're saying really make those connections early on and work very closely with the community and, and maybe go to the events that they already have planned instead of having to start everything yourself right yeah and definitely like doing your background research of what work is already done so like for East Biloxi there's a group called the East Biloxi Biloxi Community Collaborative and they had done a vulnerability assessment of the area so instead of going in and doing another vulnerability assessment you know we reached out to them we got that information and then partnered with them to see okay based on that what is a reasonable next step so yes Making those connections, starting those conversations, but also making sure you are not the 10th person to do repeat because that goes into the building of trust and, you know, the history that those communities might have with organizations coming in 10 times doing the same work and then they don't see any of the results. I love what you're talking about because it's all about the community, building relationships, but then positioning your project so it fits in what's come before and what's coming after, right? Instead of just standing alone off off there uh, by yourself. Nina, what about you? What's what's advice that you would give for people that want to do this kind of work or see this kind of change in different uh, disaster-prone communities? I mean, well, I agree with pretty much everything Kiyama said, but just like, yeah, trying to budget in that time to create those relationships, create that trust, and also listen to their needs, really truly listen, um, and try to make sure that you aren't, again, like the 10th person coming in. With the rain barrels, I'm very excited to see how the rain barrel giveaway and activity works out, because that was actually something the community asked for, and the community had had someone come in the past and offer to do a rain barrel activity with them, and then they never showed up again. So it was very it was very interesting. I'm glad that we were getting to do something that they wanted in the past, and that they didn't have that trust in those people to follow through because they just never showed back up again. So I'm glad that we're getting to take something that they wanted in the past and actually have it come to fruition this time. Yeah, I love that. And that's something that they initiated that they wanted, right? So you know, the work you're doing isn't going to be missed. It's, it's doing something that commun- that the community asked for, right? Yeah, definitely. It's something that they asked for. And then like trying to plug into those different groups and those different meetings. Um, I'm still working for trying to make sure that we have nature-based products and nature-based spaces for their mental health and their youth, because that's something that they asked for in two different parks in South Middle County. So even though this project is coming to its close, sort of, I'm still working with them and plugging into their, their groups groups and their committees, just working with them and continuing to build those relationships. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking time. This is so inspirational. I love the work y'all are doing. Uh, Thanks, Kiyama and Nina, for coming on the podcast and best wishes for the rest of the conference. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having us. This is my first time on a podcast, so I'm very excited. (laughs) Thanks, Kiyama and Nina, for coming on the podcast. There's so much I love about this conversation we had. When scientists and researchers apply for funding to do coastal resiliency projects, they're usually required to indicate how they plan to communicate their research findings with the public. Many researchers resolve to organize a public presentation at the end of their project to share the results. 
The level of outreach and engagement that Kiyama and Nina were talking about, however, takes us many steps beyond that. They talked about engaging with the community long before the project even starts, getting buy-in from community leaders and the public. I love the concept that Kiyama shared about coming to community events that have already been planned and using that infrastructure that's already in place as a more efficient tool for outreach. Why not come alongside what the community is already doing instead of reinventing the wheel to have to start everything on your own from scratch? Kiyama also shared about learning what projects have already been done in an area and using the momentum and information from those past projects to accelerate her present work. This relates very closely to the work I do at Flood Information Systems. Several years ago, Mississippi Alabama Sea Grant funded my work to build the first comprehensive flood database and create a map with the elevation of 1,200 buildings in East Biloxi in the same area where Kiyama is now working. It was really encouraging to see how these projects relate and how well Kiyama is basically running with the momentum from these past projects to help these people be more resilient in the present and the future in the same area of East Biloxi. The conversation with Nina taught us important lessons about listening to the communities we're working in and following through on our commitments. She taught us about the benefits of rain barrels and mentioned that this is something the community has wanted for a long time. She and her team are building bonds with the local community by providing these portable rain barrels and helping the community heal from the negative impression of a previous organization that promised rain barrels but never delivered. I love that Nina also shared about the importance of providing flood resiliency information in the languages spoken by the local population. Coastal Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana have a large Vietnamese population that has grown tremendously since the 1970s. Their presence has become an important part of the local culture, and Nina was insightful to mention the value of budgeting for translation services to create content that they can understand in their native language. This example could also be applied to the rapidly growing Spanish-speaking population in the region as well. Well, this concludes our interviews at the GOMA conference. Thank you so much to our four guests on this podcast who took the time to share their insights and perspectives. Well, hey, before we wrap up, I wanted to share a few other things I learned at the Gulf of Mexico conference. David Perks, an architect and professor at Mississippi State University, shared about the new Resilient Housing Planning Guide that has been produced by Mississippi State University's Gulf Coast Community Design Studio, Smart Home America, Gulf of Mexico Alliance, and the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. This guide provides a step-by-step blueprint for communities to make themselves more resilient from extreme weather, including topics like creating resilient housing plans and housing land use vision plans. Michael Savares, distinguished professor in the Department of Marine and Earth Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University, shared insights about the destruction from Hurricane Ian's ebb surge. He explained that flood surge occurs when salt water pushes into coastal communities, followed by an ebb surge that occurs when the salt water later pushes back out to sea. Sometimes the ebb surge can actually be more destructive than the flood surge. He shared an example where a home was elevated higher than the flood water level, but it was taken out by a rapidly flowing ebb surge channel. The neighbors on both sides of this home had concrete slabs, but the home in the middle did not. The water, taking the path of least resistance, created a channel under the home in the middle and took it out, even though it was elevated higher than the flood level. 
Finally, one of my favorite moments of the conference was when I got to meet one of my childhood meteorology heroes, Carl Parker from the Weather Channel. Carl is an amazing teacher, and I always appreciated how he would take an extra moment on air to teach the audience the science behind meteorology. We were able to meet and chat for 15 minutes, and he expressed interest to be a guest on a future episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Well, that's a wrap from the Gulf of Mexico conference in Tampa, Florida. Thanks so much for coming along on the ride and for your continued support. Your interest in our content has enabled the GeoTrek podcast to become the number one podcast on the topic of natural disasters, according to Feedspot. Have a great week wherever you are. Try to get out and enjoy the early spring weather many of us are experiencing, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.